Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Tony Rikers. Good evening, friends. Welcome back to our final events of Bible Prophecy Seminar. We're up to night five. And our topic tonight is entitled The Antichrist Part 1 and Part 2. Now, tonight's lecture will be a little bit longer than usual. So we're going to have a break halfway through to stretch our legs. And then we'll come back and finish off our lecture. But tonight we start Antichrist Part 1 and Part 2. It's, a, it's really Part 1 of a, a series of four or five lectures that go together. Tomorrow we have the Seal of God. The next night, 666 and the Mark of the Beast. Then we have the USA and the New World Order. They all talk about the same subject, but the picture expands as we go into each of the nights. Last night, we saw how Satan began a war in heaven. He began warring against the government of God. And we found last night that the secret strategy of Satan is to deceive you and I into breaking the law of God. Tonight, we are going to discover that Satan is working on, a, on this earth through a particular power, through a particular system known in the Christian world as the Antichrist. He's going to try and use this particular power to deceive the inhabitants of the world into breaking the law of God. Now, tonight's topic is a very difficult topic to present. The reason being is because nobody wants to be identified as the Antichrist or be involved with part of the Antichrist so when this lecture is presented, often it can offend somebody. But I ask you to come tonight and listen with an open mind. Look at the evidence. Look at what the Bible has to say. It's not what I'm telling you. Tonight the Bible will make it very clear who this particular power is. And our attitude should be, what is the Bible saying? You know, there's an old saying. It goes like this. This, my only question be, the teachings of men so often mislead us, but what says the Bible to me? This should be the rule of our faith. What says the Bible to me is what we need to ask tonight in relation to this subject of the Antichrist. Now, who is the Antichrist? You know, in our world today, especially the Christian world, there's a lot of speculation of who the Antichrist will be. In times past, some people said that the Antichrist was going to be Adolf Hitler. Others said Mussolini. But we find that the end of Christ wasn't Mussolini and it wasn't Adolf Hitler. People try to find out who it is by speculating. They go to the newspapers of the day and they say, oh, this is taking place. Antichrist will be probably this person or it'll be this system. Some people in recent times said that the Antichrist was going to be Saddam Hussein. But of course, we know Saddam Hussein is now dead. He's not the Antichrist. Others believe that Osama bin Laden, the world terrorist, he is the Antichrist. Others believe that the Antichrist is not going to be a person or a system. It's going to be a gigantic computer system that will control the world. Others believe that the Antichrist will be some sort of sinister person that will come right at the end of time, some evil being. Others go to the newspapers and day by day they speculate about this and they speculate about that. But friends, we cannot come to this subject tonight with our own private interpretations of what we think it will be. We must let the Bible speak for itself. The Bible tells us in 2 Peter 1 verse 20, 
knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. When we come to the prophecies of the Scripture, friends, we can't say, I think it could be, it looks like it might be. I, I believe it's this. The Scriptures will interpret themselves. We cannot have private interpretations. And today, too many people have private interpretations about this subject. But we are going to find tonight, the Bible will give you and I 12 crystal clear identifying marks that we will have no mistake about who this particular power is. Now let's begin our lecture on the Antichrist part one and part two. On night three, we discovered about the second coming of Jesus Christ. We discovered how Jesus will come back to this world. It will be literally, visibly, gloriously, audibly. Now in Revelation chapter 14, we find that the John the Revelator has a vision of the second coming of Christ. And I want you to open your Bible quickly with me to Revelation chapter 14, looking at verse 14. Revelation chapter 14, reading from verse 14. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud... One sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. Here we find John has a vision of the second coming of Christ. He sees Jesus coming on the clouds of heaven. We see, we saw there in night number three, when Jesus comes back, he comes with the clouds. Verse 15 tells us, And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle, and reap. For the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So here we see a picture of the second coming of Christ, coming on the clouds of heaven with a sickle to reap the harvest of the earth. He's coming back to gather his people to be with him. Now, just prior to these verses, we find that there is a message that's going to go to the world to prepare <clears throat> the people of this world for the second coming of Jesus Christ. The very verses preceding verse 14 and 15 are known as the three angels' messages. It's from these three angels' messages that we get our first glimpse, as it were, of the Antichrist. These three angels' messages are a worldwide message. They are a message that will go to the entire world. The first angel talks about going to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. It will go to the entire world. Now, the third angel's message gives us a very solemn warning. Notice what the Bible tells us here in Revelation chapter 14, verse 9. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. Here we find our first picture of the Antichrist. And you're probably thinking to yourself, well, I don't see any Antichrist in there. It's talking about the beast. This is the most fearful warning you will find anywhere in the Word of God. And the warning is against those who worship the beast and those who receive the mark of the beast. This beast power, my friends, we will discover tonight is the Antichrist of Bible prophecy. The warning is to the world, don't get involved in this system. It's a warning against those who do two things. They worship the beast and they receive the mark of the beast. Now, we're going to cover the mark of the beast in an up-and-coming lecture. Tonight, we need to discover, first and foremost, who the beast is. You know, many Christians in our world today believe they know what the mark of the beast is. 
And I usually say to them, what's the beast? And they've got no idea who the beast is. They believe they know what the mark of the beast is. But friends, you can't know the mark of the beast until you know what the beast really is. It just makes logical sense, doesn't it? Because the mark is something that links you back to the beast. This beast, so-called, is the Antichrist of Bible prophecy. Now, if God is going to give such a strong warning that he will pour out on this earth or the people who worship the beast wrath without mixture, it would only be fair to God, fair to us, if God would make it very, very clear who this particular power is. God will make it very clear for us, I believe, tonight who this power is. Now, before we go any further, we need to remember the books of Daniel and the book of Revelation has a lot of symbolic language in there. And you may be thinking to yourself, worship the beast. And you may picture yourself worshipping some sort of animal. When the Bible talks about a beast, it's not talking about an animal. It's talking about a political power or a system or a nation. We find evidence for this when we go to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 23 explains what a beast in Bible prophecy represents. Daniel 7 verse 23, the Bible says this. Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom. So a beast in Bible prophecy equals a kingdom, a nation, or a ruling power. So when the Bible says, don't worship the beast and don't receive the mark of the beast, it's talking about being involved in a system, a political power, a ruling power, a nation, or a kingdom of some sort. That's what it's talking about. Just as you and I today, we do the same thing. We depict nations with animals, with beasts. A beast is just an animal, isn't it? If I was to say to you today, what does the bald eagle represent? You would all know it represents the United States of America. What about the bear? The bear represents Russia. What about the kangaroo? Of course, we all know the kangaroo represents ourselves, Australia, doesn't it? Or if I was to say to you, the magpies are playing, uh, the magpies are versing the tigers at the MCG, what would I be saying? Would I be talking about going to a, the MCG, the Melbourne Cricket Ground, and finding there that magpies are, are fighting against tigers? I'm not talking about animals. I'm talking about football teams, aren't I? What God is doing in his word is that he uses beasts and different animals to describe different nations and different ruling powers. Now, let's discover who this beast is and what it's all about. This beast power, this antichrist power, is first brought to view in Revelation chapter 13, verse 1 to 8. Revelation 13, verse 1 to 8. Notice what verse 1 says. And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. Here we find this is beast power. It rises up out of the sea. It's like a leopard, like a lion, it's like a bear, it's like a dragon. And notice that verse there, it says, And the dragon gave him, this power, his seat and great authority. Now, who is the dragon? We've discovered in our last lecture, the dragon represents who? Revelation 12 told us very clearly the dragon represents the devil or Satan. So here we can see clearly that this power is a power that the dragon, that Satan is working through in this earth. He's given this power, its seat and great authority. Satan is using this system to further his cause in this world. Notice as it goes on now in verse 3. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death 
and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. Verse 5, And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things, and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. Verse 6, And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God. Verse 7, And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. Verse 8, And all that dwell upon the earth shall do what, friends? Shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Here we see, you may not have noticed yourself as we read through those different verses, there was several identifying marks in those verses to help us identify this power. But there's two main identifying points in this chapter. The first point is that this power is a global power. The whole world will one day worship and follow this system. It's a global system. It's a global power. And the issue, the second point is the issue is all about worship. Right through the book of Revelation chapter 13, we find worship, 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 several times, worshipping this particular power. Now, why is this power known as the Antichrist? So far in our reading of Scripture, we have not come across one word that mentions the word Antichrist. Not one place mentions the word Antichrist. The reason why this power is known as the Antichrist is because of two, two reasons. The word Antichrist can be understood in two particular ways, interpreted in two ways. The first way, which is the way most people think of, is that Antichrist means against Christ, that they're against Jesus Christ and they hate Jesus Christ and they're, they're against God. But the second definition is the more proper interpretation. And the word Antichrist actually doesn't mean just so much against Christ, but in place of Christ. You see, this beast power is the Antichrist because of two reasons. First, it persecutes the people of God. We saw that in our verse just before. It's fighting against the people of God that puts that system as Antichrist. It's against Christ. And also it receives worship. It receives worship which puts itself in place of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ, the God of heaven, is the only one who should receive our worship. He is the only one whom we should be obeying. And this power now comes in and usurps the authority of Christ, which makes this system antichrist in both ways. Now in those verses, verses 1 to 8 of Revelation 13, there were several identifying marks. There was 42 months. There was blasphemy against God. There was war with the saints. There was a deadly wound, and the deadly wound being healed. Now, what we find interesting here is that what John saw in Revelation chapter 13, we find that Daniel, the prophet Daniel, who we've studied before this, he saw the same power in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 13 are talking about the same power. They're different visions talking about the same thing. Now, we've seen in Revelation 13 some identifying marks. We need now to go to Daniel chapter 7 and discover what Daniel saw and put these two visions together and glean our 12 identifying points to help us identify this power. Let's now go to Daniel chapter 7 and see what Daniel saw in vision. In Revelation chapter 13, the beast that John saw 
was like a bear, a leopard, a lion, and there was the characteristics of a dragon. Daniel sees in his vision lion, bear, leopard, and a dragon. Let's read now from Daniel chapter 7, verse 2 to verse 7, and see what Daniel's vision was all about. Daniel 7, verse 2 says this, And I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven strove upon the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, different one from another. Now, in John's vision, the beast came from the sea. In Daniel's vision, the beasts come from the sea. It goes on. It tells us what these beasts were like. Daniel 7, verse 4. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Here's our first beast. It was like a lion, had eagle's wings. Daniel 7, verse 5. And behold, another beast, a second like to a bear. And he raised up itself on one side, and it had three ribs in the mouth of it between the teeth of it. Verse 6, another, another beast comes to view. After this, I beheld and lo, another like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. Now verse 7. And after this I saw in the night visions, and behold a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it, and it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. So here's the four beasts that Daniel saw. A lion, bear, leopard, dragon, and the dragon had ten horns upon its head. Now notice the next verse. It's the next verse that really starts to now introduce the Antichrist power to us. Verse 8 says, I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. Now, of course, as we've gone through all these different scriptures so far, the ultimate question really is this. What does all this represent? There's all these beasts and there's horns and things coming up out of the sea. What does all this represent? Well, when Daniel saw this vision, Daniel was thinking exactly the same thing. What does this mean? And in verse 14 and verse 15 of Daniel chapter 7, as Daniel's seeing all this vision and he's thinking in his mind, what does it mean? There was an angel standing beside Daniel and Daniel asked the angel in a confused way, what does all this mean? Now, thankfully, the angel was there because the angel helps to interpret to Daniel and to us what the vision really is all about. The very first thing that the angel says to Daniel is he says what the beast represents. We looked at this verse before. Daniel 7, verse 17, the angel said, These great beasts, which are four, are four kings. And in verse 23, he said a similar thing. He said, Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth. So, the first thing the angel says to Daniel, he says, Daniel, the four beasts that you saw, they are four kings or kingdoms. They are four kingdoms, they are four world empires is what they basically are. And these four world empires, these four kingdoms, we are going to discover are the same four world empires that we saw on night number one in Daniel chapter two. They are Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece and Rome. They're the same as Daniel chapter 2. You remember back in Daniel chapter 2, we discovered the head of gold was Babylon. Now the lion is Babylon. 
The chest and the arms of silver were Medo-Persia. Now the bear raised up on one side is Medo-Persia. The belly and the thighs of brass was Greece. Now the leopard with four heads and four wings is Greece. The legs of iron was Rome. Now this dragon beast with great iron teeth with ten horns is Rome. And the feet of iron and clay and the ten toes were the divided nations of Europe. And now the ten horns on top of the fourth beast Rome is the ten divisions, the ten original divisions of Europe, the same as the ten toes of Daniel chapter 2. Now let's prove that these four beasts are Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece and Rome. There's a few points there that tell us what they are. The head of gold was Babylon. Now the lion with eagle's wings is Babylon. How do we know that the lion with eagle's wings is Babylon? One of the first clues that we have is that if we go back into ancient Babylon, we find that ancient Babylon itself depicted itself as a winged lion. On the screen, you'll notice a picture there. And these are original tiles from the processional street wall depicting a lion with eagle's wings. Their mascot, as it were, the same as a kangaroo represents Australia, a lion with eagle's wings represented Babylon. Also, we find in the Word of God that the Word of God calls Babylon a lion. Notice Jeremiah 50, verses 43 to 44. The king of Babylon hath heard the report of them. Behold, he shall come up like a lion. In the book of Jeremiah, there are several references to Babylon being like a lion. The lion with eagle's wings represents Babylon, the same as the head of gold in Daniel chapter 2. Well, what about the bear that was raised up on one side? This represents the kingdom of Medo-Persia. The interesting part is the bear was raised up on one side. The Medo-Persian Empire was a coalition-type empire where it was made up of the Medes and the Persians, but the Persians were much stronger. That's why it's generally known as the Persian Empire, represented by the bear raised up on one side. One side was stronger than the other side. What about the fourth beast, the leopard with four heads and four wings? In Daniel chapter 2, it was the belly and the thighs of brass, now, it's a leopard with four heads and four wings representing Greece. You know, when Alexander the Great, we talked about this on night number one, when Alexander the Great conquered the world in such a short period of time, sadly, he couldn't conquer himself, and he died at a very, very early age, the age of about 33 years of age. When he died, there was a bit of chaos in the empire because who was going to rule the empire? There was around 100 generals. Basically, they fought amongst themselves, until there was four left. And those four generals are represented by those four heads on that leopard, the empire of Greece. Those four generals were Cassander, Lysimachus, Ptolemy, and Seleucus. They were the four generals represented by those four heads. And of course, we come down to our fourth beast, the last beast in Daniel's vision. This beast was like a dragon. It didn't really have a, a particular description a nondescript beast with great iron teeth breaking everything in its path. The same as the legs of iron of Daniel chapter, chapter 2, represented by the Roman Empire. And of course, in Daniel chapter 2, the Roman Empire, the legs of iron came down and molded into iron and clay in the feet and toes. And we discovered that the iron and clay mingled together, the divided nations of this world, was really representing those original ten divisions that the Roman Empire broke up into. And now those ten horns 
on the fourth beast, which is Rome, represent those same ten original divisions of the Roman Empire. You know, the Burgundians, the Heruli, the Ostrogoths, the Visigoths, and so forth. Now, up until this point, we have not learnt really anything more than we learnt on night number one with Daniel chapter two. Same kingdom, same empire, same horns, same toes. We're right down to the divided nations of this world. This brings us really to the year 476 AD, the same as Daniel chapter 2. But you remember in our study there was a big gap between 476 and the day in which we live in 2008, a big 1,500 plus year gap. Now God is going to fill in that gap because in that gap we find the Antichrist power arises. After Daniel saw these four beasts and the ten horns, he saw something else. What did he see? Another little horn. The little horn is really the whole focus of the chapter of Daniel chapter 7. Now the question is, what does this little horn represent? Who does this little horn represent? Now make no mistake, friends, this little horn power, it is the Antichrist power of Bible prophecy. Now, as Daniel was trying to work out what all this was talking about, what all this vision meant, we find that the angel begins to explain things to Daniel. And it's from the angel's explanation in the rest of Daniel chapter 7 that we get our identifying marks to identify who this power is. Here we have Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, the divided nations of Europe. But now this little horn comes to view, and it's this little horn power that is the same as that beast power in Revelation chapter 13, known as the Antichrist. There are 12 identifying marks that we can glean from Revelation 13 and Daniel chapter 7. And on the screen, you'll see our first identifying mark. It's found from Daniel chapter 7, verse 7 and 8. The first identifying mark is this. The little horn comes out of the fourth beast, Rome. Remember, as Daniel was watching in vision, he saw the fourth beast, there was ten horns on the fourth beast, and as he was watching, a little horn grew up out of the head of the fourth beast. Now, that fourth beast is the Roman Empire. So, in other words, a little horn arose out of the Roman Empire. Identifying mark number two, we find in Daniel 7, verse 8 again, I considered the horns, the Bible says, and behold, there came up among them another little horn. So as Daniel's watching in vision, he sees this fourth beast. He sees ten horns on the fourth beast, which are those ten original divisions of Europe. And as he's watching, among them comes up another little horn. This gives us the geographical location of the little horn. It has to be somewhere in Western Europe. That's where those ten divisions originally were. And the Bible says it arose among them. So we had to look somewhere in Western Europe for the rise of this little horn power. Identifying mark number three, Daniel 7 verse 24, we are told, And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another, being the little horn, shall arise after them. Once again, think about this in your mind. Daniel sees this little horn arising amongst the ten other horns, but it arose after them. So in other words, the ten horns were in place before the little horn came to power. 
So in other words, the little horn would rise somewhere sometime after the year 476 AD. We've already learned that those 10 original tribes were in place by the year 476 and the little horn arises after them. It has to come to power sometime after the year 476 AD. Identifying mark number four, Daniel 7 verse 8. Notice what the Bible says. The little horn before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. Here we find the little horn power as it comes up amongst those ten nations. Daniel saw as it came up, it plucked up three of the horns, three of the nations by the roots. Now when you pluck up something by the roots, friends, if you go to your garden and you pull out weeds by the roots, what does that mean? It means that weed is dead. If you pull the head of the weed off, it usually grows back again, doesn't it? When the little horn power arises to power, it comes up and it plucks up three of those original nations. Now, we know three of those original nations from history were destroyed. The Heruli, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths are no longer with us today. The rest of those nations are. They are with us today. They have different names, but they are still with us to this very day. Identifying mark number five. Daniel 7 verse 24 and he talking about the little horn shall be different from the first so as Daniel sees in vision these ten horns he sees a little horn he noticed that the little horn is different from the ten horns in what way is the little horn different from the other ten you see friends the little horn is a religio-political power remember back there in Revelation chapter 13 we discovered the little horn receives what? Worship. Is worship dealing with religion or politics? Is dealing with religion, friends. The other ten horn powers, they were political powers. This power is a political, but it's also a religious power. I would call it a religio-political power because it receives worship. That is how it is diverse from the other ten horns. Identifying mark number six, Daniel 7, verse 8. In this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. We find here that this little horn power has a powerful man as its leader. A powerful man as the leader of the little horn power. Identifying mark number seven, Daniel 7, verse 20. It says this, whose look, talking about the little horn, whose look was more stout than his fellow's. So here we find that the Bible describes the little horn as more stout than the other horns. Now, that word stout means chief, lord, captain, master, great. It's a more of a ruling authoritative power than the other ten horns that were before it. So the little horn would be more powerful than the other ten horn powers. Identifying mark number eight. Daniel 7, verse 25, And he, the little horn, shall speak great words against the Most High. Here we find the little horn power. It is the Antichrist power because it's speaking great words against the Most High. The book of Revelation, chapter 13, told us it speaks great words and blasphemy against the Most High. Notice this verse in Revelation 13, verse 5 and 6. And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God. This power is a blaspheming power. The little horn power speaks blasphemy against the God of heaven. 
Now, of course, we have to ask ourselves here, what does it mean to speak blasphemy against the God of heaven? What is the definition of blasphemy? Now, if I was to ask you tonight, I'd probably get a dozen different answers of what blasphemy, blasphemy means. But once again, friends, we must go to the word of God and get our interpretation of what blasphemy, blasphemy means from the Bible, not what we think. And we're going to find two definitions that the Bible gives of blasphemy. The first definition we find in the book of John chapter 10. In John chapter 10, we find that Jesus makes a statement. <clears throat> he makes that statement to the Jews. He says, I and my father are one. Now, when the Jews heard that, the Bible says they took up stones to stone him. And Jesus said, for what good work do you stone me? And in verse 33, they answer. Notice the answer. John 10, verse 33. The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, and because that thou being a man, makest thyself God. They said, We're going to stone you because you're a man, and you're making yourself equal to God. Now, friends, if Jesus was just a mere man, and he claimed to be equal with God, that would be blasphemy, wouldn't it? For me to stand up here tonight and say, hey, I'm equal with God. Friends, that is blasphemy in the highest degree. But for Jesus to say it, it wasn't blasphemy because he is equal with God. But our first definition of blasphemy is one making himself equal to God. The second definition of blasphemy is found in Mark chapter 2. In Mark chapter 2, we find Jesus speaking to a man. He says, thy sins be forgiven thee. Now, when the Jews heard that, they were not too excited. They said in verse 7, Why does this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? I said, you're speaking blasphemy, claiming to forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. Now, once again, for man to claim the power to forgive sins, that is blasphemy, friends. But of course, Jesus Christ is the only one that can forgive us of our sins. He is the Savior of the world. He is the one who came to this world to die for our sins. He is the one that is equal with God. Isaiah 9 verse 6 says, He is the everlasting Father, the mighty God. He can forgive our sins, but friends, for you and I to claim the power to forgive sins as mankind, that is blasphemy. So our second definition of blasphemy is claiming the power to forgive sins. Identifying Mark number 9. Daniel 7, verse 25. Now, look at this one carefully. Daniel 7, verse 25. And he, the little horn, shall think to change times and laws. You know, friends, we discovered last night that Satan is trying to get you and I to break the law of God. He wants to put his own laws in place. And now we find the Antichrist power. The Bible tells us that this particular power believes it can change the very law of God. The little horn would attempt to change the law of God. This power is so arrogant, so boasting, so strong, so powerful that it even believes in itself it can change the law of God. Now, Satan tried to change the law of God. And the only way you can change the law of God is to remove God from his throne and place yourself there. Satan tried that. He was cast out of heaven and we're in the chaos we're in today because of his attempted coup against the government of God. Now, Satan is working through this power on the earth to attempt to change the law of God. Can anybody change God's law? Any church, any group, any man? No one can change the law of God, friends. 
It's written by his own finger on tables of stone. But this power believes it can change the law of God. Identifying Mark number 10, Daniel 7, verse 21. I beheld, and the same horn, talking about the little horn, made war with the saints and prevailed against them. This is a persecuting power. It persecutes the people of God. So in other words, the little horn would persecute the people of God. It's a persecuting power against God's people. Identifying Mark number 11 of our 12. Now this is one where you need to have your thinking caps on. You need to be listening real clear. Because Revelation 13 and Daniel 7, both chapters give us a time period. Notice Daniel 7 verse 25. It says that this little horn power would reign for a time and times and the dividing of time. In Revelation 13 verse 5, it said, And power was given unto him to continue forty and two months, or forty-two months. So here we have two time periods. We have to now try and unlock what these time periods are, how long they are. Let's look at the 42 months first. How long is 42 months? We find that the 42 months equals 1260 days. Taking a Bible month of 30 days per month, times it by 42, we come to 1260 days. Now, how long is a time, times, and half a time? I'm going to tell you that time, times, and half a time, or a dividing of a time, is also 1260 days days they are the exact same time period how do i know that time times and dividing of time is 1260 days well once again friends we must go to the bible and compare scripture with scripture to get our answer we find our answer in the book of revelation in chapter 12 in revelation chapter 12 we find god talking about his church how his church is persecuted through the dark ages and has to flee into the wilderness notice the words of revelation 12 verse 6 and the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of god that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score days here we find one thousand two hundred and three score or sixty days so this woman this church flees into the wilderness for 1260 days now we find something very interesting because that's exactly the same time period as 42 months 1260 days but we find in verse 14 of the same chapter god repeats exactly the same event but notice the language of the time period revelation 12 verse 14 and to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness into her place where she is nourished now notice for a time and times and half a time this is exactly the same language as daniel chapter 7 times times and dividing or a half a time now it's exactly the same event in verse 6 it says 1260 days in verse 14 it says time times and dividing of time so we can conclude from that that the times times and dividing of times or half a time is the same as the twelve. 160 days a time is a year times is two years half a time is a half a year that's three and a half years in months that equals 1260 days so the little horn power would reign for 1260 days now there's one more question we have to ask ourselves here 
And that question is this, how long then is a day in Bible prophecy? We've worked out the time period is 1260 days. How long now is a day in Bible prophecy? We find a day in Bible prophecy equals a year. We find a few texts that tell us this. In Ezekiel 4 verse 6, it says, I have appointed thee each day for a year. Numbers 14.34 tells us, each day for a year shall you bear your iniquities, even 40 years. There's a principle in the word of God when it's dealing with prophetic portions of the scripture. Not everywhere you see the word day, it doesn't always mean a year. But when it comes to Bible prophecy, it's talking about a day for a year principle. Now, most Christian scholars, almost all Christian scholars, recognize this because there's many prophecies in the scripture that work out precisely when you use the day for a year principle. So our 1260 days actually equals 1260 years. Now, I know that's a big point. There's a lot of information there. I've tried to make that as clear as I possibly can. If you've got any questions, come and see me later. But the little horn would reign for 1260 years years our last identifying mark number 12 revelation chapter 13 notice the the words in verse 3 and i saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death and his deadly wound was healed and all the world wandered after the beast the bible tells us that this little horn would receive a deadly wound and eventually the wound would be healed now of course the question is simply this These are our 12 identifying marks that help us. There's actually a few more we'll go into later on in other lectures. But these 12 identifying marks help us identify who this particular power is. This message was made available by Cornerstone Ministries. For more resources like this, visit cornerstone-ministries.org. You've been listening to Go Teach All Nations here on 3ABN Australia Radio.
worship Christ the Lord, for He is worthy. He alone is worthy. The Lamb slain from the foundation is worthy of our Kings 
and merchants intoxicated by her
We hope you enjoy this short presentation on the history of the Reformation from lineagejourney.com. Luther had been called to trial and he arrived in Worms on the 15th of April, 1521, and he caused quite a stir. People were dying to see him and his place of residence was constantly full of people who wanted to spend a few moments with this brave man who was willing to take on the whole church all on his own. Luther's very appearance was a victory in itself. For to be condemned and excommunicated and then be given a voice in trial undermines the authority of the one who excommunicated him. It must be noted that Luther at this stage of his life and ministry still had no intention of breaking away from the church. He commented that nothing could be gained through schism and he hoped to reform the church from within. One of the key principles of the Reformation that Luther accepted and held on to resolutely was that the Bible was the foundation of all Christian belief and practice. Thus, when accused of error and heresy, he simply asked his accusers to show him from the Bible where his error was. As he was about to enter the room, a few people spoke words of encouragement to him, in particular one army general who told him that he was about to make a more noble stand than he and any of his captains had made on the battlefield. He told him that if his cause was just, and he was sure of it, to go forward in the fear of God. At the trial, Luther was asked two things. Firstly, were the books his? And secondly, whether he would retract his opinions? Luther responded and said that the books were his, but he asked for some time in order to craft his response as to whether he would retract or not. This convinced the assembly that he was not acting from impulse and would later give further weight to his answers. The next day when Luther responded, he divided his writings into three different sections. In the first section, he dealt with faith and works, and even his enemies declared that these were not only harmless, but also beneficial. In the second class of books, he denounced the corruptions of the papacy, and to revoke these would strengthen the tyranny of Rome. And in the third class of books, he denounced those who defended these very evils. While Luther admitted that perhaps he could have been a little bit less harsh in his responses, even these he was not willing to retract. At this point, Luther had spoke only in German, and he was now asked to give his response in Latin. Despite being tired, he was able to do this, and it gave further weight to his response as everyone in the chamber heard what he said for the second time. The spokesman now pushed him for an answer, asking him the question, will you or will you not retract? Standing here on this very spot, Luther gave a response that has become famous over the centuries. Unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, for I cannot accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have often contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise, so God help me. Amen.
The assembly stood in amazement, speechless at what they had just seen and heard. He was again asked if he would retract, to which he responded, May God be my helper, for I can retract nothing. The courage that Luther spoke with at this trial has inspired many people since then to stand for God in the face of opposition and against the odds. In Mark 13, verse 9, the Bible tells us that one day we may have to stand before kings and rulers. May we be faithful to God, that if we have to stand, we would do so with boldness and unflinching courage in the face of trial. To view more episodes in this series on the Reformation, go to lineagejourney.com. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.